This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Maybe seated. Well, it's good to be back with you after a week off, and we're in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus follows immediately from the events of Exodus, and if you remember when we left the pages of Exodus, the Lord's manifest presence, His glory had settled on the tabernacle and He was with His people. And this book is giving more instructions from God through Moses about the tabernacle and the priesthood. And the main theme of the book is very clear, it's holiness. How was this nation of Israel supposed to fulfill its covenant responsibility to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as Exodus 19.6 said? And so the subtitle, Be Holy for I Am Holy, is said numerous times throughout the book of Leviticus and quoted in the New Testament many times. God is holy. And, and coming to this book in isolation is a little bit challenging, I'll be honest with you, because we have this command to be holy, for I the Lord am holy, but we know we can never obey that command. In fact, it reminds me of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees were thought of as the ones who kept the law perfectly. And Jesus says, even them, if your righteousness does not exceed that, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this subject of holiness, taken in isolation, can lead to very heavy burdens, can't it? And haven't we done that in our own lives? Haven't we taken the, the weight of the law and the burden of God's holiness and placed it upon ourselves? In such a manner that we think, wow, I have somehow outsinned the grace of God, or somehow I've, I've done it this time. Now, God's going to kick me out of the kingdom, the left foot of fellowship instead of the right hand. And so, coming to this subject, it, we want to be careful because the book of Leviticus is not given in isolation, it was given with all five books by Moses to the people. And what we've already seen is that God knew that they would never be made righteous through the law, but that a Messiah needed to come who would actually restore everything lost in the fall, who would come who would circumcise the hearts in Deuteronomy 30, something that they couldn't do themselves. And at the heart of this sacrificial system that we see in Leviticus are several different sacrifices that complement one another that God gives the people that addresses all the different aspects of human wrongdoing. And what we see in this system, even as a shadow, even in the book of Leviticus, is that Yahweh is the Savior who delivered His people out of Egypt. He's the one who sanctifies them and sets them apart, and He does it with sacrifices a variety of sacrifices in Leviticus, in order that he would be in their midst and they would have communion and fellowship and relationship with him. We saw this already in Exodus. And of course, these sacrifices point to the perfect sacrifice to come, 
the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what we sang about. There's no better introduction than that last song. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. And that's what we heard in Exodus, by the way, is that this is the gracious and compassionate God who's abounding in faithfulness, abounding in loving kindness, who forgives iniquity. And so we come to Leviticus and we see here it's, it really breaks up into three very, uh, parts pretty easily in the book. And the first nine chapters deal with this sacrificial system first from the standpoint of the people and then the priests. So chapters 1 to 7 outline a number of different offerings that the people are to give. And it's not a completely new system. Rather, it's a regulating of the existing system that Israel knew about by their experience in the wilderness with the tabernacle. And what this is leading up to is the dedication of the tabernacle to be used so that people could draw near to God. And it's only after the dedication of the tabernacle in chapters 8 and 9 that Moses and Aaron were able to enter the tabernacle where God's glory dwells in chapter 9 verse 23. So what was this process of sacrifice that we see given? First, a person, the regular person in the nation of Israel who wanted to draw near to God would bring an animal to the courtyard. The worshiper would lay his or her hands on the animal's head. The animal is slaughtered. The blood is collected and sprinkled on the sides of the altar. And in some offerings, uh, like the purification offering, some of the blood is put to special use. And depending upon the sacrifice, either the whole animal or only part of it were burned up completely. And sometimes the priests got to retain and eat the rest of the sacrifice. And... Any meat that was not burned up was considered clean and holy and useful for the Levitical priesthood. So that, that's a summary of what they were to do. And this sacrificial system was worship, was drawing near to God. In fact, of these five sacrifices that we see in the first seven chapters, three of them were voluntary. They didn't have to do them, but it was whenever they wanted, they could do these as an act of worship. And so I, I want to get this idea for just like placing your mind in the, the common person of Israel that was in the wilderness, the tabernacles there, God had delivered them out of Egypt, God had sustained them in the wilderness, they want to draw near and worship Yahweh, what do they get to do? They get to offer sacrifices and offerings that are, yes, there was mandatory ones for sin, which we'll talk about, but there was voluntary ones done freely. Not only that, they were given a bunch of festivals, holidays, to celebrate. I mean, isn't that the first thing we look at? One of the first things we look at in a, in a package when we're looking for a new job is, well, how many holidays do I get? How many times do I get to celebrate and have a party? In this book of Leviticus, with this emphasis on the holiness of God, there also seems to be a misunderstanding that God's holiness means He doesn't know how to be happy. That we, don't know, we can't have fun and celebrate and laugh and have joy. But what we see in the Levitical system is that the average Israelite who was obeying the law and desiring to draw near to God when they offered up these sacrifices, they left the tabernacle with a clear conscience in the sense of my sins are covered for a year. I'm right with God. I can draw near to Him and I can worship Him. 
And we know it's a shadow and a type. And we know the book of Hebrews teaches us they didn't receive everything because Christ hadn't come yet. And everything is better in the new covenant. And we'll get to that. But these sacrifices, for example, chapter 1, we have this burnt offering, which was voluntary. It says in verse 4, it was for the purpose... He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, chapter 1, verse 4. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him, this Hebrew word kippur, to pay a ransom, to cleanse, to purify. So anytime an Israelite felt like they needed to make atonement for their sin, they could come and give a burnt offering to the Lord at the tabernacle. Chapter 2, the the grain offerings, they were uh, a free will grain offering that was given as an act of thanksgiving, chapter 7 says. Uh, Actually, in numerous reasons, but it was all basically spontaneous. I'm remembering God. In fact, chapter 2, verse 2, the end of the verse, the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the offer, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Again, as a memorial, verse 9, as a memorial, verse 16. So every time the worshiper remembered the goodness of God and who he is and what he's done and delivering them from Egypt and sustaining them in the wilderness, they might bring some grain to the tabernacle and say, I want to worship God freely for his goodness. And that was an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Chapter 3, the peace offering the word shalom, the Hebrew word, meaning things are the way they ought to be. In fact, we know this world is not under shalom because things are not the way they ought to be. But Christ, who's coming, who is the Prince of Peace, brings peace and makes peace, and He's going to make shalom when He comes again. But here, in the context of the peace offering, chapter 3, it's this restoration of fellowship and communion with God. In fact, the average Israelite, as they were worshiping God and bringing these offerings, they had a sense of shalom. That things are the way they ought to be between God and I. Not completely. We see this in the, in the, the weight of the book of Leviticus and the, the consequences for sin and the holiness of God and, and, and some things that go on that we're going to talk about in a little bit with Nadab and Abihu and, and people being killed in the midst of the, of the gathering of Israel and these kinds of things. But you have this sense, and this is what I just want to get at, is that these were all offerings that were voluntary. This was the worship of the people. This was not heavy burdens to them. This was the means by which they could draw near to a holy God. Which leads right into the next two. Chapter 4 and 5 is the sin offering. And the purpose of the sin offering was to atone for unintentionally breaking one of the commandments given by God. And so if they had broken the commandments of God, they had to give a sin offering, a purification offering. In chapters 5 and 6, there's also a guilt offering provided for the restitution of a wrong along with the atonement for the wrong itself. And so these first seven chapters lay out all of these sacrifices that were to happen weekly, monthly, regularly. This was the, the, the regular pattern of practice in coming to the tabernacle. Well, then in chapters 6 and 7, you have a reiteration of these sacrifices, but it's slightly different because it's instructions for the priests Yes, there's a repetition of all these same sacrifices, but it has to do with 
the holiness of the meat associated with each sacrifice and what the priest was to do. For example, chapter 7, verse 19, flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from the people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or an unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. So not only the, the average Israelite, but the priesthood had to be careful about drawing near to God. And the, the sacrifice that were given, they couldn't just take whatever meat was left over and keep it. They had to distinguish between clean and unclean and and we'll talk more about that in the second part of this book so these laws of sacrifice are given first seven chapters then we have a narrative chapters eight and nine the time when aaron and uh, the priesthood were consecrated for service in the tabernacle and what you see over and over in chapter eight is they were careful to do everything that the Lord had commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 17, verse 22, verse 29. And so they give all of these same offerings in chapter 8 that they were told to do. They were given first for the priests and then for the people. And then Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And remember, at the end of Exodus, they weren't able to enter because the glory of the Lord was preventing them. Now that they were consecrated, sanctified, set apart to God, they could go in. The offerings had been given. They had been purified. And turn over to chapter 9. You see the conclusion. Verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted, and fell on their faces. God accepted the offerings and a pattern's established. When priests offer sacrifices properly, they're able to enter the tabernacle, the presence of God, the holiness of God. They're able to advocate for the people and the people are blessed and their response is worship. They shout for joy and they fall on their faces and they worship God. Now, these first nine chapters we see a pattern set that's going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to just go ahead and steal some of my own thunder here because this is what the New Testament does, right? It gives us the answer that Christ is the fulfillment of that pattern. He came, Hebrews 7 says. In fact, turn over to Hebrews 7. We'll take a moment to look through the author of Hebrews and his argument about Jesus. Looking back to these, this book, of Leviticus chapter 7 verse 26 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So the pattern established in Leviticus that was daily practice at the tabernacle that went on for years and years. Guess what? Jesus fulfilled that 
once for all by offering up not the blood of bulls and goats, but himself. And then it goes on to say in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, he doesn't even serve in the tabernacle on earth. He serves in the perfect heavenly sanctuary. Over in chapter 9, verse 23 of Hebrews, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites of Leviticus 8 and 9, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That is, the temple in heaven where God's glory dwells. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as these high priests enter the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. That's Leviticus 16, by the way. We're not quite there, but that's the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Jesus, on the other hand, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then in chapter 10, we see that Christ's death was the ultimate sacrifice of which all Old Testament types were a shadow. Chapter 10, verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. This is the rub, isn't it? We're reading Leviticus. We're in Leviticus. We hear, be holy that I'm holy. We see the sacrificial system and we know that it's heavy burdens because it can never make us perfect. It could never make them perfect. And so what we need is not more law. What we need is not more guts, you know, just pick ourselves up and do this thing once and for all. What we need is a Savior. What we need is a substitute. What we need is someone who can do what we can't do. What we need is someone who is holy and innocent and undefiled and separate from sinners and high above the heavens, who's a high priest forever. What we need is Jesus. And so I don't want to lose sight of that this morning. Yes, we are to be holy as He's holy. We see it repeated in the New Testament. And apart from Christ, that becomes a burden, doesn't it? Or... We redefine what holiness means and we become proud thinking that we've achieved it. And when we hear, be holy that I'm holy, we don't think of ourselves. We think, oh, you over there. You need to hear this sermon this morning. Man, that would really, I know what's going on in your life and that would really help you. So we either get proud, which is what the Pharisees did by redefining holiness, or if we're more honest, we become despairing because we know we can't measure up. And this is the good news of the gospel, by the way, is guess what? Cheer up. You're worse than you think. And God in Christ has loved you more than you can possibly imagine. And He is the one who saves and delivers and redeems. This is His plan. He so loved the world that He gave a Son to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice, to be our atonement to be our high priest, to be the means by which we can draw near to God. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So rejoice this morning. Don't let this message weigh you down 
Because the Father has so loved you, he gave a son and he hasn't abandoned you. He poured out his spirit, who's the spirit of adoption. He's not a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. He's the spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Forgiveness of sins comes through the shedding of blood and the blood of Christ is superior. We no longer need to feel guilty Chapter 10, verse 2 of Hebrews, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, verse 3 of chapter 10, there's a remainder, reminder of sins every year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then you have verse 10 by that will of the Father, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And he says it again. Verse 21 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, we heard it this morning, didn't we? With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water and what do we do we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and isn't that what we've been hearing from moses throughout the pentateuch is that the one who promises is faithful he made a promise to abraham and to isaac and to jacob and he's faithful and he kept that promise in his son the lord jesus and so christian you don't have to fear you can draw near to a holy God and you're not going to be cast out because His Son is your substitute who perfectly paid the penalty for your sin so that you could receive His righteousness. It's a great doctrine of justification by faith alone. Preach it to your hearts this morning. When you hear the command to be holy as I, the Lord, am holy, you don't think I got to do more. What you need to remind yourself of is Christ has done everything that you needed to do, and you are holy in Christ. And so God has made you to be holy, declared you to be holy rather, and he's making you to be holy by his spirit. And so you can have great hope that what he commands to be holy, he's going to produce in you by his spirit. You're not alone. Back to Leviticus. Chapters 10 to 16, clean and unclean. Now this is, again, a little bit of a thorny subject because what happened in history was that these clean and unclean laws became the occasion for prejudice by the Jewish people against the Gentiles. These clean and unclean laws became equivalent to saying there's the better people and the outcasts. There's the God's people and then the dogs, those who were less than dogs. And that's not what God intended by these clean and unclean laws. The tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrificial system is the means by which the community can draw near and approach a holy God who dwells in their midst and desires to have relationship with them. And the clean and unclean laws are simply emphasizing the calling of Israel to be a holy nation and different from the other nations on the earth. They weren't meant to exclude the other nations. They were meant to be a light to draw the other nations to a holy God. That's what Isaiah says. 
But Israel failed in their duty to draw the other nations, instead using these clean and unclean laws to separate themselves from the other nations. I think there's a, well, I'll save that. Chapter 10, the death of Nadab and Abihu. So after the, temp, the tabernacle is sanctified and Aaron and the priests are in there serving and then you have this incident. Chapter 10, verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And so the narrative shows their sin was disobedience. They were priests and they didn't do what God said. And so God judged them. And what we see is that this disobedience was a heart issue. It was a worship issue because he says, I want to be glorified among the people. It reminds me of uh, Samuel's response to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So even in the Old Covenant, the heart was the primary thing. And Nadab and Abihu were taking it upon themselves, presuming to give a sacrifice that God had not commanded. And we see in the later uh, chapter here, verse 10 and on, that the priesthood was to distinguish between clean and unclean. And it's setting up all of the clean and unclean laws. And so whatever it was that Nadab and Abihu offered, it was something unclean. Chapter 10, verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And then we see six more chapters of clean and unclean. And so this this offering of Nadab and Abihu, it's this strange fire thing is used to talk about lots of different issues of worship. But in the context, I don't think the way that a lot of people use it today or the way it, it was used in the context here, which was, they offered something unclean to the Lord and did not distinguish between clean and unclean. And as a result, they were judged. They disobeyed God. They're, they were not worshiping him properly. Jesus, of course, as the high priest, the ultimate high priest, distinguishes between unclean and clean. He actually does more than that. He makes the unclean clean. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but these chapters of laws of purity and impurity, clean and unclean, we have clean and unclean food in chapter 11, and it ties into God's example of holiness, chapter 11, verse 45, (coughs) for I, the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And The food issue, we know that Jesus declares all foods clean in the New Covenant, and Peter had to learn that lesson with Cornelius, that he could have a ham sandwich and it'd be okay. And Jesus had already taught him, hey, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you. And so I think that's really helpful to us when we look at this stuff, that this is not 
uh, telling us, you know, the diet that's going to make us thin. It's not telling us, you know, uh, how you could uh, be closer to God if you eat something from the Old Testament. No, if you want to have rock badger to the glory of God, it's mentioned in this chapter. You're more than welcome. I don't know how appetizing rock badger is, but it's now clean in the new covenant. But what, we're, what was going on here is that Israel was to be distinct from the nations around them. They were to be set apart. And these clean and unclean laws distinguish them. Now, for us, how are we to be holy and distinct when we don't have a dietary code or we don't have a specific dress code? Over and over, the New Testament tells us the distinction of the Christian is that whatever they do, whether they eat or drink, they do it to the glory of God. So it's not really that foreign to the text. It's still an issue of worship. But we know that now what distinguishes us, distinguishes us from the world is not a uh, uh, the, the identity of Israel in their dietary laws and their ceremonial laws and these clean and unclean laws, what distinguishes us is that, as Jesus says, they will know you're Christians by the love you have for one another. And as we love God and love our neighbor, it's an act of worship. And we can eat and drink the most common things in our life. We can do it to the glory of God as an act of worship. Now then chapter 12, he brings up childbirth. And uncleanness here in this context is, is very specific that it's not some vague notion of guilt. It's not being kicked out of the everyday life of the community. Now that's how the Jewish people used, practiced it later. The Pharisees practiced it later. But when it was given, hey, if you have a baby, you're, you're considered unclean, but you're not kicked out of the life of the community. You're not guilty of something for having a baby. It's a wonderful thing. But it distinguishes the holiness of God and drawing near in the tabernacle. It's meant to be simply talking about separation from the presence of God in the tabernacle. That's it. Not horizontal relationships, but vertical relationships. In fact, we see Jesus demonstrating this in the Gospels over and over. That He drew near to people who were considered unclean. Showing that this was the heart of the law to begin with. Skin diseases, chapter 13 and 14 number of implications they were isolated from the corporate gathering around the presence of God again just this vertical relationship and and so they had to make purification in order to draw near it was also a reminder of the ravages of the fall wasn't it that's what we see in these unclean laws is that genesis in the fall it impacted the world and that there is a consequence of the fall that we see in our own lives. But just like the man born blind, and the Pharisees said, who sinned, him or his parents? They had a misunderstanding of uncleanness. Jesus said, neither one, but that the glory of God might be demonstrated. So skin diseases are mentioned in chapters 13 and 14, and then discharges in chapter 15. Now, are we supposed to talk about this chapter in public? I'm not sure. It's definitely a hard one for family devotions around the dinner table. <laughs> Chapter 15, verse 31. I'll read you this verse. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate 
from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that's in their midst. This was the heart of the issue, was vertical relationship with God and his presence in the old covenant tabernacle in their midst. That's it. Everything that's talking about here in this chapter of discharges, yes, it's intimate. It's, not, it's definitely not PG rated. They were not to be avoided, though. Neither were these things inherently evil. In fact, they're good things. What it simply did was disqualify someone from participation in the worship of the corporate gathering of the tabernacle until they're clean. And again with Jesus, we see Him drawing near to someone with a discharge. Mark 5, verse 25, a woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. You remember that story in the Gospel? She had taken all her money and spent it on physicians trying to get better. What's the implication there? She wanted to draw near to God in the temple in Israel, and she couldn't. Have you ever thought about that? Why would she spend all her money? Yes, it might be merely physical, but I think in the context, it's more than that because her faith made her well. She wanted to be near to God. She couldn't under the old covenant because she was unclean, so she spends all her money to try to get clean so she can draw near to God, and then she sees Jesus. And she says, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be well. And what does he do? He makes the unclean clean. He heals her. He says, your faith has made you well. He basically tells her, you don't have to go to the tabernacle anymore because you met me. And there's something better. Now we don't, this is a new covenant. This is worship in spirit and in truth, as John 4 says, where we don't go to Jerusalem anymore because everybody in the new covenant can draw near to God right where they are. And there's no more clean and unclean. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Well, the Day of Atonement capstones this section on clean and unclean, chapter 16. And the heart of the ceremony was where the high priest lays his hands on a live goat, verse 21, confesses all the sins of the nation. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And it's sent to wander. And then in verse um, yeah, 24, not right, 34, this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once a year because of their sins, and Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. And so you have this once a year, we're going to have this, this sacrifice, and there's two goats in the Day of Atonement. The one that's the scapegoat that gets sent off into the wilderness and all the sins, picturing that the sins are taken away from the people as far as the east is from the west, as the Psalms say. And the other animal is killed and sacrificed and blood taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the altar so that their sins are covered for a year. So that atonement, purification for sin is made. And it's interesting, our English word atonement, um, if you break it apart, uh, it actually does work out this way how we got it etymologically is that at one mint. So we're at one with God. So we pronounce it atonement now, but it came from this idea that we 
we now don't have anything, no barrier between us and whoever we're atoned with. And the atonement was done through purification. And so it's a, it's a word of relationship and communion and fellowship with God. And this day of atonement was a day of celebration. Why? Because we're going to go up. It is the biggest day of the year, and we're going to go up, and we're going to see all of our sins placed on the head of a goat and sent away from us, and we're going to see another goat slaughtered so that our sins could be covered for a year, and I can be at peace with God and atoned, and I can know that I can draw near to God, and there's nothing hindering me. Now, i got to do it again and again and again. And so it's not a perfect sacrifice because it has to happen over and over, but the average Israelite who loved the Lord would rejoice in this day. It would be a party and a celebration. It would be great hope. It would bring them peace and joy. It would not be a heavy burden for them. All of this points to Christ. You see, all of these sacrifices, all of these various uh, commands given to sacrifice, all these different things to cover different issues of sin, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that is all of it. All of it. He only had to offer himself once, as we read. And so what is our response to this? As New Covenant Christians, what do we do with this? Besides just remembering that all of this was a shadow and type pointing to Christ, besides just thinking about the fact that we can rejoice in our Savior who once for all paid for our sins, we heard it this morning in Hebrews 10. Our response is fourfold. Verse 22, we draw near to God with assurance. That is with confident hope that we're going to be in His presence and we don't have to worry next year that we got to do another day of atonement. We can draw near any time with assurance. Second, we can hold fast our hope without wavering, Hebrews 10.23. That is incredibly encouraging because I don't know about you, but there are many Sundays when I come in and my hope is wavering. That's a good picture of it. I want to have hope, but it's wavering. Kind of like some of your voices when you sing. You wish you had perfect pitch, but it's wavering. Kind of like me when I sing. We want to hold fast our hope without wavering. And the way we do that is remember our Savior. We want to then, verse 24, encourage one another to love and good deeds, obedience to God. And then we want to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of son, but encourage one another all the, all the more as we see the day approaching. And so life together in community, drawing near to the God who's in our midst, who's dwelling inside of us because we are now the temple that we looked at in Exodus last week. We're the place where God's glory dwells. We have great application for this. And it all starts with remembrance. Just as Israel was to remember who God was, who God was, who God is, rather, and what he's done for them. He delivered them out of Egypt. He preserved them in the wilderness. He gave them the tabernacle. He was in their midst. In the new covenant, we remember who God is and what he's done through his son. He died on the cross for our sins in our place so that by faith alone we could be forgiven and declared righteous. Not only that, he raised Jesus for our justification and seated him at his right hand so that now we have a high priest forever in the heavens who's interceding for us. 
And so we'll never be cast out. We remember this. This is who God is. Not only that, he hasn't left us as orphans. He poured out his spirit who is conforming us into the image of his son so that there's coming a day when we'll see God's face and we'll be fit for his presence and he'll never cast us aside and we'll serve him forever and we'll reign forever as a kingdom of priests. This is what the Pentateuch's talking about. This is what we have in Christ. This is what we're to remember. And when we remember this, guess what happens? We worship, which is what Leviticus is about. This is our calling. This is our great delight. This is what we were created for. And I want to tell you, there's nothing in this world that will ever satisfy like this. Everything else will let you down. Everything else will not bring you peace. There will be no shalom. Everything else won't bring you joy and happiness and satisfaction. Only God in Christ by the Spirit. It's what we were created for. And so we glorify Him and we enjoy Him forever. And this is what God had planned from the beginning and what He's unveiling in the book of Leviticus in shadows and types. Now what's amazing is that there was this distinguishing of clean and unclean to come into the presence of God in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant, there's no longer anything unclean. Not only are all foods declared clean, in Acts 10.28, Peter concludes, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Not only is food declared clean, all these ceremonial things declared clean, now there are no unclean persons in the new covenant. We are all clean. That means you don't have to clean yourself up. In fact, that's one of Satan's greatest lies. You ever said this? I know I have. Well, man, I need to get a few things right before I you know, get back into fellowship with God, before I come back to church, before I get with the people of God. I gotta clean myself up a little bit. My clothes are a little dirty. No, you've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. You're clean. You come as you are. You've been loved. That's why we're to go out to the highways and byways, to the hedges and compel them to come in, to say there's great hope in a Savior who makes unclean people clean, who makes sinners righteous, who makes those who are headed to hell and destruction, and he makes them to be those who are inheritors of eternal life. And so come. Well, chapter 17 to 27 of Leviticus is this holiness code. And the rest of Leviticus describes how the people will be a holy nation. That is a nation set apart to God. And again, it's, it's like I feel like I have to, it's complicated because yes, the holiness code is there, but in the midst of the holiness code is great hope in a God who is not ending with the holiness code, but he's promising a Messiah who's going to fulfill the holiness code on the behalf of the people. Well, chapter 17, as we looked at in the first week, this major incident happens of worship of goat idols in the camp. Chapter 17, verse 5, this is to end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice 
in the open field that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord and the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generation. So the people weren't coming to the tabernacle to worship God. Some of them were saying, well, you know what? Uh, We offer a goat, so maybe we worship the goat. And so we'll do it in front of our house or our tent. And it'll be fine. It'll do the same thing. Trust me. I got it. And God says, no, that's not coming to me. That's coming to demons idols so they need to come the way i prescribe they come it's an issue of idolatry in other words it's just like the incident with the golden calf and i would argue it's just like the incident with nadab and abihu in chapter 10 and so these this holiness in the life of the people what is it to look like and i gave you some quotes of um things the Lord says about himself in these chapters because I want to get not to simply the commands of holiness but the motive and this is one of the key like like it's not a secret but but here's a secret of the Christian life but it's not a secret is that the motives the desires the affections the will that's far more important than simply the duties And so think about your parenting, your discipleship, who you're mentoring. If you just give a list of duties or you give your advice as a list of duties, that may or may not be enough. Getting to the motive, to the heart, to the desires. This is is where we make the decisions we make and why we do what we do. In fact, we always do what we want to do. And so we have to get to the level of desires and level of motives, and the only way to change the motives is at the level of the mind where we remember who God is and what he's done. And so he says in chapters 18 to 20, he gives plenty of commands and regarding all sorts of things in the life of the people, but he reminds them, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Why should you obey me? Why should you be holy? Why should you want to be like me? because I am your savior and your deliverer and your redeemer, the one who brought you out of Egypt, the one who's cared for you. See, this is what's important. Uh, Chapter 18, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The motive is, well, who is Yahweh? Well, we saw it in Exodus. He's the gracious and compassionate one abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. Oh yeah, I want to be like him. So of course, how did Jesus explain it? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's at the level of motives. Why do we obey the commands of God? Because we love him. And why do we love him? Because of who he is. And because of what he's done. He saved us and delivered us. 
So this is not meant to be heavy burdens. Do this because I say so. Because I'm the dad, or I'm God, and I say so, and that's just how you should be. If you think that's how God is, you misunderstand who He is. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. And the reason He wants you to be holy is because that's what's going to cause you to live in these verses. To have life as it was meant to be. To have shalom. To have eternal life. Abundant life. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Well, He's the Lord who sanctifies you. Chapters uh, 21 and 22. God is the one who sanctifies us. By the way, what does this look like? If we go back to chapter 19, uh, verse 18, we see... You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does holiness look like throughout these passages? It looks like love. Loving God and loving your neighbor. That's why Jesus said this on these two commands, hang the whole law. And he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. God is the one who sanctifies us. Chapter 22 Verse 31, keep my commands and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So even here in Leviticus, he's telling them to be holy, but he also tells them, I'm the one who makes you holy. I'm the one who sets you apart. I'm the one who sanctifies you. So even then, God was telling them, it's not totally dependent upon you because you could never do it. And he says in chapters 23 to 25, I'm the Lord your God. I'm your God. I'm the God who's with you. The God who's in your midst. Yes, I'm the maker of heaven and earth, but I am Yahweh your God. He says it over and over and over in these three chapters. In fact, uh, 24 Look at this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 1, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony and the tent of the meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It'll be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in a loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on a table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about that the lights are on, the table is spread, and Yahweh wants his people to slide their knees up under his table, as it were, and commune with him and draw near to him. Aaron's going to get to eat from the table of God. Seated at the Father's table, seated at Yahweh's table in the tabernacle. And guess what? In the new covenant, it's not just Aaron and his family. It's all of us. We now have a place 
at the table because of the finished work of Christ. And the table's always set, and the lights are always on, and the Father's always home, and we can always draw near. That is good news. And we are always welcome. And He will never abandon us, and He will never forsake us, and He will never cast us out. And the Lord was planning this from Leviticus. This tabernacle is not some remote thing that makes no sense to us. This is God's house in the midst of his people and we're a part of his family and we can draw near. This is what we're gonna be doing forever. Seated at his table. I know I've said it before here, I know we have refrigerator rights in the kingdom of God. We are welcome. We are part of the family. And I don't mean that to be insulting. I mean that to give you great hope that you are welcome. And whatever it takes to beat it into your mind and drive it deep down into your heart, you are wanted and welcome in the family of God. God himself is saying, draw near to me. He wants you. Do you know that Ephesians 1, he considers you his inheritance? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And oh, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see it. You might think you're unwanted and unloved and not necessary and not needed. But the Father in Christ says, you're my inheritance. You're my child. I want you. Draw near to me. You're welcome. Come. Don't stand back. Don't stand at a distance. Come. This is who God is. I am the Lord your God. Oh, that we would believe it. Oh, that we would believe it. We don't. Help our unbelief, Lord. Well, the final conditions of the covenant are given in chapter 26. God reassures his people of his unfailing covenant love. Look at verse 40 of chapter 26. If they confess their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery, they committed against me and walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. He goes on and on. Verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. You see, God says, I'm gonna keep my promises. Even though they're not faithful, I'm gonna be faithful. And then you see chapter 27 is a large chapter about vows and tithes. And this voluntary act of worshiping God by means of vows was one of the highest forms of Old Testament worship. And the legislation of it in this chapter assumes that men and women out of their gratitude to God for his mercy and grace will make offerings and vows in a response of love, not merely a response of law. They're going to do it because they want to, not because they have to. That's what chapter 27 is saying. But it also is a reminder of the hardness of the heart and the need for a circumcised heart that Deuteronomy is going to talk about and that the Messiah is going to come and accomplish. Well, let's turn over to the book of Jude. And by closing, be holy, for I am holy. 
You see, the Father sanctifies us, set us apart through the Son and by the Spirit. This is what we saw in Hebrews 10. And I don't want to go back there, but go reread Hebrews 10 again. It is a divine commentary on the book of Leviticus and everything that Jesus has done. But I just want to end with this here. I think it's a great thought. At the end of the book of Jude, the benediction, verse 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Now who is that? Him who is able. Well, we see in verse 25 that it's the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ. So it's the Father in verse 24. Him who's able to keep you from stumbling. And we had the Holy Spirit in verses 19 and uh, 20. Uh, beloved, verse 20, keep building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God the Father, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredibly Trinitarian here in the book of Jude. But listen to verse 24 in this concept of holiness. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now the book of Leviticus, we, we saw that it's about be holy for I am holy. And it could be tempting to think that, yeah, we could be holy, but man, there's no joy associated with it. No, the Father is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His own presence. The presence that was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, blameless, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. What is our response? Worship, praise, joy, a party. By the way, there was a bunch of parties I skipped over. All the festivals. I just didn't have time to talk about them. But Israel loved to party. And the sacrifices, I don't mean to disparage it again, but when you cook meat on fire, that is a pleasing aroma, not only to the Lord, but to me as well. I want to turn on my Traeger now. Barbecue something up. Why? This is a celebration. So, all of this to say, yes, we're to be holy. Yes, the book of Leviticus points that God is holy and He demands holiness. But what it also tells us is He supplies the demand. In fact, the Pentateuch shows us that. He gave a substitute for Isaac. He gave the sacrificial system as a substitute for the people. He promised a Messiah who would be the perfect substitute, his own son, who would restore everything lost in the fall. So don't go away this morning thinking, I gotta do more. You go away this morning rejoicing that your Savior has done it all. Father, thank you.